Good morning. Welcome to Faith this morning, this Mother's Day. I trust this is a great Mother's Day for you who are moms, you who are, are, are women. All of us have mothers. All of us have mothers. And if your mother is still with us, I trust you will connect with her uh, this day. Um, we had a sermon series on the gospel according to Job. And uh, when we saw the sermon series and I saw Craig's lineup, he had me for Mother's Day and I just chuckled. He said, you can do anything you want to do on that day. And I said, I said I'm not sure I want to, the only thing about women in the book of Job was in chapter 2, where Job's wife says, honey, just curse God and die. <laughs> and, uh, and we chuckled. I said, I'm not sure I want to use that text for Mother's Day. <laughs> However, I tend to go where angels fear to tread. Uh, in prepping for the Job 2 sermon, this message sort of emerged. Uh, uh, because many of the women were away, didn't, didn't hear what I, some of the, the thoughts I shared there that day. But this, this message today is kind of a springboard from Job chapter 2. So we are, in one sense, we're following a rabbit trail, but we're still in Job, okay? Use your imaginations. Because in, in Job chapter 1, Job had the first test, God allowing Satan to take away his many things, his family, his material possessions, and his security. And in chapter 2, was a second test that we looked at a couple weeks ago where God allowed his body, Job's body, to be attacked by Satan. And in that chapter, we noted the words of a very discouraged wife, Job's wife. She was frustrated. She was angry. She was grieving. She was brutally honest about how she felt. And we saw her give Job some pretty bad advice, very unhelpful advice. You still trust the Lord? What has that gotten you, Job? In one sense, she was confirming the prediction of Satan that Job would fold up under test number two. That, that encounter wonderfully is, is summarized wonderfully in, in the great gospel, classic gospel song that I love to hear sung. Bishop uh, Charles Hayes and the Cosmopolitan Community Church of Prayer Choirs sing, Jesus can work it out. Great gospel song. Diane Williams, a soloist, the verse says this, Job was sick so long, flesh fell from his bone. Wife, cows, and children, everything he had was gone. Wife came running to him, devil all in her eyes, saying, curse your God and die. Job looked at the woman, looked up at the sky. Woman, you sound foolish. You don't sound like my wife. I don't have no doubt my God's going to work it out. I gave it over to the Lord, and he worked it out. He worked it out. And, and so we saw in Job, the second chapter, that Mrs. Job was a minor character in her husband's famous story. Let me again notice a, a few interesting things about her advice, so I can at least have the semblance of being in Job chapter 2. It was not wise advice. It was not wise advice. Um, curse God and die. Never good advice. Uh, what he said in chapter 1 is, True about his things is also true about his life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. God is sovereign. So, so this kind of advice is always from the pit, no matter how tough things get in our lives. It, it was very honest what she said. She spoke from her pain, from her grief, from her fears, from her anger even. It was thankfully not heeded, advice that Job did not heed. It was what we might call today a private rant. 
God lets us peek into the window of that household, into their private conversation. We read and, and we feel the frustrations of this couple who are in the midst of the greatest crisis of faith of their very marriage, their very lives. It's not just a crisis for Job, but for her also. But you know the most intriguing thing to me about what she said in Job chapter 2 is that we have it in our Bibles. <laughs> we have it in our Bibles. W was it a private encounter? Did she tell someone who told the author of the book of Job and he put it there? Did Job himself write this about his wife? I have no idea what the answer is to those questions. So. Oh, but I do know this. It's a very, very human encounter between two real people, a couple, who are in pain. And it was reflecting on, 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 on those thoughts that, that, I, that I, I came to the book of Esther and the, the, the practical, very practical message, hopefully, that we'll have today. About, and it's simply about words. Words. Words of counsel, words of frustration, words of encouragement, words of challenge, words to people who are in our lives in many ways. Words. Mothers and fathers speak words. Husbands and wives speak words. Parents and children speak words. Friends and former friends speak words. And, and we give advice and counsel and challenge to the people in our lives. And so I want to look at the book of Esther. I want to look at two women in the book of, of Esther, uh, in the first part of, of the book of Esther this morning, which is why we have three, three scripture passages that you're going to see in a second. But the insights that we can find from them are not only for wives, but they're not only for women. They're for all of us who want to be uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. First, some background before we look at the passages. We're going to give background. There's a lot of background to understand here, and we're not going to get overwhelmed by the background, but we need to understand what's going on here in the first half of the book. The king, Ahasuerus, has a banquet, and the wine was flowing, and he wanted to show off his wife, the queen Vashti, and so, so he, he calls her up, and, and they say, no, she doesn't, she doesn't want any part of this wild party. He's furious. He's embarrassed. So he's going to set her aside. He calls for a beauty pageant to find the next queen. And they come, women come, and, or are dragged, or whatever. And, and, and one of them is Esther. She's, she's orphaned. She's a Jewish immigrant. She's beautiful. She wins the contest. She's full of grace. She was an orphan raised by Mordecai, her older cousin, who was like a father figure to her. In the in this story, the, couple, the first couple of chapters, emerges a man, Haman the Agagite. And he is promoted by the king to the second place in the kingdom. And he hates the Jews. Now, there's a 500, over 500 year here history of why he hates the Jews, why there's this deep animosity there. You can look at that in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Agagites and the people of Israel. But Haman orders the people to bow before him. He's, only, he's not the king, the second in command. Bow before me. But the Jews won't bow. So he gets the king to allow for there to be an annihilation of people who won't bow, the Jewish people. So on a particular day, that's going to be, that's going to be uh, uh, materialized. And so until that day, the Jewish community is very fearful, very afraid. And, and Esther, who is now a queen, hears of this, and Mordecai goes to her and appeals. Now, at that point, let's pause. Let's read Esther chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. Esther 4, 12 through 17, ESV translation. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, 
Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for, me, for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I will perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So that, that's the plan. She goes to the king, her, her husband, the king, and she requests a banquet. And then she requests a second banquet because she's afraid. She's afraid to make this appeal. And she wants this banquet to have Haman at the table as well. It's a small banquet. Haman, before this, he sees Mordecai, and his anger riles up again. His deep anger at Mordecai, the Jewish man. Which, chapter, Esther chapter 5, verse 9 to 14. Let's jump in right here. Esther 5, 9 to 14. And Haman went out that day joyful, glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. So he's real happy. But, look at this, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. That's the plan. So that night, the king couldn't sleep. They said, bring, bring some books. Let me, let me hear some history books. That put, that put me to sleep. And the history books, he, he heard about a plot against him that Mordecai had actually stopped prior, several years prior. He'd uncovered this plot in the palace. And, and, and so in the morning, he, wakes, he, he asks Amon, what should be done to a man who's loyal to me and who's been a great asset to, to the king and, and who, who's, done all these, who's done great things? And, and Haman thought that the king was talking about him. And so Haman said, well, you should put royal garb on that person and parade that person around town so the people will know how great that person is. And the king says, that's that's a great idea. I want you to do that for Mordecai. Haman did not enjoy that responsibility. So let's look at uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. As the, the, now the feast takes place that day. So the king and, the, and, the, and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, 
and if it pleases the king, let, me, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And then King Ahasuerus, I can never say that, said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And that chapter, as the chapter comes to an end, you'll see the, the, the demise of Haman and God, is, and, God, and God's people are vindicated. And the story of Esther moves on as he is hung on the gallows that he thought were prepared for Mordecai. But I want you to look at, the, at two women there in that, in that story, two women, Esther and Zeresh. And my title is Honest Words, Helpful Words. Honest Words, Helpful Words. The words we say to people are life-changing. They have life-changing potential, life-changing power, and they can encourage and they can discourage. And that's what I want to talk about today, the practical impact of words. Now, Esther is the major character in the book. The book's named after her. She's married to the king. The second woman is Zeresh, Zeresh, the wife of Haman. And I want to look, my outline is simple. I want to look at Esther's wise words. I want to talk about Zeresh's foolish words. And then I want to talk about our words, our words, our, the importance of our words. Now, just first globally about the book of Esther. You know, it's, it's interesting in that this book, we never see the name of the Lord, God or Yahweh or, or Lord, ne we, ne never in this book. That's a surprising fact for people who don't know that. This is a story of how God is at work even during tough times. It, 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 he specifically protects the Jewish people from their destruction. You know, you know, no, Jesus Christ is going to be born 400 years later, approximately. And God made sure that despite the satanic attempts to destroy the people of Israel, Jesus would, have, would be born. The book of Esther also reminds us that God is involved whenever there are people who would name his name. God is involved, even if they aren't specifically saying his name for one reason or another, he's involved. In a special way, God manifests his presence within and among his covenant people. And if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, he goes wherever you go. Think of that. Even if people don't know that you name the name of Christ, even if you're kind of anonymous in that where you are, if Christ is in you, Christ is there. Amazing, amazing truth. This book reminds us of that. God is involved everywhere. But, but I want you to understand Esther's very strategic spot, the strategic place that God has for her. I mean, she winds up in the palace for the purpose of courageously standing in the gap before the presence of the king to, to lobby for the sake of the Jewish nation. And Mordecai, her, her cousin, tells her that she has to step up and do what no one else can do because she's in a unique place. He essentially tells her that the defining moment of her life is before her eyes. And what are you going to do? So she agrees to accept the assignment from God through her cousin. We, we see three things about her in, in, in 4, 15, and 60. We see leadership. We see faith. We see courage in, in verses, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, those famous verses. 
Then later in chapter 7, we see her, her revealing that wicked Haman who was at the side of the table there, who, who, who thought the king was about to honor him. Haman is the one who's secretly scheming against the king's back. She exposes that. We see, again, we see her courage, her initiative there. Queen Esther has a physical beauty, but she has more than that. That's what caught the king's attention in the first place. But much more than that, she's wise, courageous. She's submissive yet assertive. She's loyal. She's promoting the good for the cause of the kingdom of God. Unlike the words of Job's wife, her words are wise. The king heeded them, and in heeding his wife's words, the kingdom prospered. Now, in contrast to, to Esther's words, we see the words of another woman in the passage. Haman's wife, Zeresh, her foolish words, Zeresh's foolish words. Chapter 5, verse 9, Haman is feeling, he's feeling good until he sees Mordecai and his, his whole countenance drops. As he's, he, the, the rage begins in chapter, nine, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He, he restrained himself, though, when he got home and he sent for his friends, the inner circle of his life, his friends and his wife. Verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10. And so he wanted to just say all the things he had done. He recounted the, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions that he had done. He wanted to pump himself up and say, see, uh, the greatness of me, Haman. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let me, let no one but me come to the king with the feast she prepared. So I have a special, unique place. Tomorrow I'm invited by her together with the king. And yet all this is worth nothing because of Mordecai the Jew. He's got a problem. Bitter. But verse 14, here's what I want us to see. Verse 14, his wife, Zeresh and all his friends said to him. So it's not just his wife, it's Zeresh and his friends. Um, you know, sometimes your friends can say stuff, but your wife can sort of kind of chime in, and she can say, don't listen to them. Listen, this, is, this is what you really ought to listen to. But no, this is his friends and his wife. And what do they say? Yeah, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. And then go joyfully to the king, to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So she, rather than giving a word of caution, says, yeah. Hey, look, look, look at verse 14 carefully. His friends are urging him on. You know, wives often have veto power in our lives. <laughs> and she should have used her veto power. But no, Haman appears to be carnal, so carnal and proud and manipulating and ready to do evil that a wise word from Zeresh would probably not have been heeded anyway. But her cheerleading him on in his dastardly plot renders him as complicit in his evil genocidal plot. Unwise counsel from Zeresh, foolish counsel. Unhelpful words that moved Haman closer to the undertaking of an evil action rather than causing him to pause, to check himself, reminding himself that his heart desires just might not be wise. You know, everybody needs somebody who will tell them, boy, you better be careful. Boy, you better check yourself, or girl, whatever. <laughs> be careful, you may not do or say what you mean to do or say. Pause. Now, we don't know much about Zeresh. She just comes on the scene. And is she godly or ungodly? Is she wise or is she foolish? 
she just comes on the scene. We don't know, but, but we do know from what we, the little bit we see here as the passage moves on, as she opens her mouth, rather than giving words of caution to her husband, her words encourage him to do that which he should not have done. It's ungodly, it's foolish counsel. Encouraging him to hit the accelerator and swiftly run to do evil, rather than cautioning him to pump the brakes. We all need people in our lives who love us enough to tell us that we're going down the wrong path. There's an example in the, in the scriptures of, an, of a, in the New Testament of a couple who were very similar to Haman and Zeresh. This is Ananias and Sapphira in, in Acts chapter 5. Sobering story in that passage. They want to be seen as big givers in the church in Jerusalem, so they conspired to present an offering that was a total profit from their sale of their property, when in fact they hadn't offered it all. They had held a portion back. And their sin was not in holding back a portion. Their sin was saying they'd given it all. That was their sin. And so if you analyze this couple, it's quite interesting because they're a united couple. They're committed together for a great cause. That's good. The, the, the great cause is not just any great cause. It's the cause of the church of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel spread. That's good. They have great loyalty towards one another. That's good. They have great communication. That's good. They're conspiring to say the same thing before Peter in that passage. But what makes a good marriage? It's commitment to the Lord. And Peter says they lied to the Holy Spirit. That's not good. That's not good. And, and the apostle judged them right on the spot in that very sobering passage as this couple came conspiring against with one another to lie to the Lord and his people. You're probably aware of, of the city police commissioner story that broke this week. I don't need to review that story. It's very upsetting. He's newly hired and seems to be doing a nice job, but he has his unpaid um, federal taxes for several years. Uh, Terry's reaction, my wife Terry, her reaction to the story was interesting. She instantly said that it is, if it's true of him, his wife is also responsible. That instinct is there. Terry knows that part of the unwritten job description of a good wife is to remind us husbands of things we need to remember. And all the men said, amen. <laughs> and it is an endless, thankless job for women. And we know that. But it's essential and normal in a healthy marriage. Whether married or not, we all need good friends in our lives. We do people who will have your back, who will encourage you, who will challenge you, who will check you and warn you. In other words, we all need folk who love us enough to speak the truth and speak wisdom into our hearts. I remember years ago when I was single, I learned so much about myself, seeing how I interacted with other people, things I needed to learn. I began to understand as a young adult things I hadn't grasped as a child, that people are complex. People have different temperaments and, and abilities and mental capacities and experiences and cultural values that they bring to relationships. And I began to learn that the words that you say need to come after reading people carefully. That what I mean to say is not always the same as what I think I have said. I remember a roommate in college. Uh, we, had, you know, we had several brothers in, 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 in Christ who we sought to have a, a third person who was not a believer yet and who we would pray for and, and, and witness to and hope they would come to Christ. It was a great idea. 
Unfortunately, we were not always considerate, tactful, gentle, sensitive, those kind of things. We were not that. We were overwhelming. So we didn't have the success that one year that we had hoped to have. I remember moving, moving, back to, moving to Baltimore after college and getting involved in campus ministry, rooming with several other campus ministers, and I began to learn things like sensitivity and tact and listening more carefully to where people are before speaking. And then, by God's grace, I got married, and I quickly entered the graduate school of relationships. And I haven't graduated from that school yet after these many years. Everybody needs a place where they can let their hair down and, and, and be allowed to think out loud, to say things that you may want to take back after more thought. To get things off your chest so that when you're out in the real world, you can have the energy and the wisdom to think before speaking. And home should be that place. Home should be the place where you can be honest, where you can share your frustrations, you can share your feelings, and not always be lectured on how wrong you are. Home is where there should be an unconditional aroma of love, of, 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 of being love and giving unconditional love in the context of growth and sanctification of one another. It's God's discipleship school. It's quite sad that our mothers are often never appreciated until we grow up and realize how wise and how loving they really were. Sometimes people have a hard time because I remember all they remember is seeing their mom at mom's worst, and, and, and that's all they can remember. Remember, home is where we have the freedom to be ourselves, to love unconditionally, and to be loved unconditionally. Esther, wise words, Zeresh, foolish words. Let's, let's get practical. Let's talk about the importance of our words, our words, the importance and power of our words. We've all heard the little axiom, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I don't know who wrote that, but they're wrong. Words can hurt. Words have both the power to help wonderfully and the power to hurt deeply. As followers of Christ, we need to always remember what we heard in the scripture reading, James 3. That small thing in our mouth is powerful. Be very aware of the power that's invested in us by God who gives us the ability to communicate with people. God is evaluating. God is evaluating. Jesus said to a the religious leaders, you brutal vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. Sober reminder from Jesus. Reminds me of an old saying that, from the country, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Words reflect the condition of one's heart. Let's talk about the power of wise words. Wise words. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. It's about wisdom. And, and part of our walk is, how, is what we say. Be careful how you speak. Not as unwise, but as wise. Wise words. Wise words, we, we want to use words that encourage, that edify, that build up. And words have the power to do that. Words have the power to create an atmosphere. Have you learned that yet? That words, you speak atmosphere, it, you change the atmosphere through your words. Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 2.14, Philippians. And we all long to hear the blessing of a mother 
we, we, the blessings of things like I love you, like I believe in you, I am trusting that you will do the right thing next time. Like I want, what I want for you is I want what's best for you. I want to help you succeed. I'm praying you do the right thing. I want you to find your purpose in life. Encouraging words as we grow. You ever notice how when, when people get in trouble, particularly young people, teens or even young adults, they get in trouble and, and, and everybody abandons them except mom. You ever notice that? Moms who still believe and still hope at 1 Corinthians 13 love. Somehow God gives women an incredible ability to love deeply. One of the great gifts of life. Per words to encourage. Second, word, we, we want to use words appropriately. Wise words are words that are used appropriately. Said at the right time and the right place, with the right tone, the right volume, the right attitude. You know, truth said in the wrong manner is ugly, no matter how true it is. Truth said in the wrong manner is ugly, no matter how true it is. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Uh, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Seasoned with salt. John MacArthur in Study Bible says, um, just as salt not only flavors but prevents corruption, this Christian speech should act not only as a blessing to others but as a purifying influence within the decaying society of the world, seasoned with salt. The culture today puts a premium on honesty, authenticity, keeping it real. And we see this especially in the visual arts and in music and in the area even of current events, keeping it real, being genuine, being authentic. And that's good. Yeah, but the Bible has other values. The, the, the kingdom of God is not against honesty and keeping it real, but the kingdom of God is also about holiness and edifying and encouraging others. So, so we, we, we believe that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. In contrast to doing and saying anything and everything that our sinful nature thinks and feels. And Paul gives very strong cautions in Ephesians chapter 5 about the importance of, of self-control in speech. Very strong cautions there. You can look at that at some point. One of my favorite rock groups from, this, from, my, from my college years was the Allman Brothers Band, blue, Southern Blues Rock. And um, they had a song called Wasted Words. It came to my mind this week. Wasted Words. The song is, it, the song is talking about someone coming at him with the wrong attitude. Listen to these words. Can you tell me, my friend, just exactly where you've been. Is that so much to ask? I'll pay you back no matter what the task. You seem really sure about something. I don't know. Take that load off. Looks like your, looks like your chest's about to go, your chest. He's about to, you, you're, the guy is in his face, about to have a heart attack. He's trying to get at him. And then, of course, is your wasted words have already been heard. Are you really God? Yes or no? You're coming at me like you're God, is what he's saying. Don't do that. Wasted words. But why? Because they're said with such anger and arrogance that they go on deaf ears. How we say, the tone, the volume, just as important as what we say. Many folk experience the pain of hearing and dis discouraging words from a mother, words like, I'm afraid you're never going to amount to anything, or you make me feel ashamed, or you're just like your no-good daddy, or you embarrass me, or whatever. Those, those words are not helpful. And there may be even 
an ounce of truth to them. Doesn't matter. They're not helpful. They're not helpful. As we think of emails and social media in our day, think of the proliferation of, of, of words, more so than in the days of Scripture, where there's a lot of verbal, a lot of speech, but there were, getting text was very difficult in that day. Now, think of the proliferation. We have, we have text everywhere on books, on our phones, on our computers, on paper, on the copy machine. Words, words, words everywhere. We need to be careful how we use our words. Wise words. We want to use words that are honest. We don't want to be deceiving. And then again, that's, that's where, again, Job's wife, her honest words, her honest feelings... She shared them with him because that's how she felt. And she was feeling the same way. And, and, and there is a time to share honest feelings. But in chapter 2, her words weren't helpful when she shared them there. They would have been even less helpful in chapter 3 when that's the way Job was feeling, as, as Craig told us last week, when he was close to the edge. Fortunately, she didn't come at him in that, in that uh, time. Wise words. We want to use words, finally, that point to the eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3 says this. As for you, Paul, talking to Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Pause. Who, who, from whom did Timothy learn things? We find in chapter 1, it was his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice that, he, that, that nurtured his faith. Verse 15. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Wisdom through Christ Jesus. True wisdom comes from above. Jesus is a fountain of wisdom. Wise words are words that point to eternal life that comes through Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. He came to dwell among us. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the incarnate word, John 1. The Logos, the word, made flesh, word. To communicate to a lost world, what did God do? He didn't send a quick text or tweet. He didn't send a video. He invaded the womb of a poor woman, and that baby grew into an infant, and into a teenager, and into adulthood. And as he fulfilled his eternal mission to be the Lamb of God, who takes away the, the sin of the world, he gave words that are helpful, words that are honest, but words that were helpful. Have you experienced those words? The words of life, the life-giving words of Jesus Christ. I have come that you might have life, and life abundantly. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Go and sin no more. Unless you repent or turn, you will also perish. The Father is seeking true worshipers. Come all who weary and are burdened, and I'll give you rest. Words, words from the Messiah, words from heaven that we must need, that we must heed the good news that Jesus Christ brings through his word because he is the word. Those words are good news for mothers and fathers, good news for men and for women. Good news for boys and for girls. Good news in every locale during every generation. So believe those words. Believe those words and, and, and build your life upon those words and, and share those words with others. 
These truths are the most honest, the most helpful words you or anyone else could ever hear. Let's pray. Well, our life is just filled with words, isn't it? I think of the verse in James that says that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Really listen to people. But there's, there's a lot of practical things in your word, and we've shared some of that today. But we're reminded, first of all, of, of, of your gift of salvation. And second, of your gift of mothers who, who shared many words of wisdom with us to some degree or another. I pray we would bless them this day. We would learn from you and from them the lessons that they have taught us. I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know he who is the word of God, the Logos, Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died for our sins, that they would know that salvation, which is free, freely given to all who would embrace him and would come and have sins forgiven. Seal this word in our lives. May, may, may this word that we've heard today May it bear fruit in our lives that we might be fruitful in our, bless, in our ministry to bless others. In Jesus' name, amen.